This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Bijan Steven, a reporter at The Verge, a music critic at The Nation, and a video game columnist at The Believer. He plays TK on the actual play podcast Fun City, hosts a couple of shows on Twitch, and his writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Esquire, and elsewhere. Bijan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. I'm uh, honored and excited. Um, and I don't say honored lightly. I've been a fan of the column for a long time. So this is tight. I am super, super excited. Um, I feel this like weird impulse to tell you every video game I've played this year. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, please. <laughs> it's it's like three. It's just all um, uh, for about three months. I was playing Super Mario World every day, start to finish. Hell yeah. Um, a lot. I was going through it, as you, as you, as you may recall. Yep. Um, and then Donkey Kong Country and Donkey Kong Country 2 came out on the Switch. Those are perfect games. I played a lot of the original Super Mario World and Donkey Kong Country this year. I think actually we I beat Donkey Kong Country with a couple friends and it was like, uh, it was great. That game is great. It's fantastic. And, and the music is amazing. Honestly, the soundtrack holds up. Holy shit. It's really, really good. I'm just, I'm still really excited for Donkey Kong Country 3 to come out because I remember the Banana Fairy as being very, very desirable and unobtainable um, when I was 12 or whatever. Yeah. Wow. Reaching all the way back into your memory. I like that. Yeah. I think, yeah, um, yeah if you want video game recommendations, please feel free to text me or whatever. Get in touch. I do. I do. I will get in touch after this show. Um, would you read our first letter, though? And we are coming out hot uh, right out of the gate. Okay. Subject. Where do I go from here? Dear Prudence, when I, call me Jenny, was 30, I got into a relationship with a 19-year-old guy, Johnny. I met him through a volunteer agency. Johnny had no job, and his family was poor and troubled. I moved him into my apartment almost immediately, and he had his first sexual experiences with me. I helped him get his GED and his driver's license. Johnny encouraged me to take charge of every aspect of his life. The relationship lasted about a year. Johnny broke up with me for reasons I never figured out. He's not on social media, I check periodically, likely due to problems with the law after we broke up. Um, and in parentheses here, uh, Jenny says, his family had an armed standoff with the local police. They had dozens of weapons stockpiled in the garage. 30 years later, I realized that this was an extremely inappropriate relationship. I should never have pursued Johnny. It was grooming. I cringe at how pleased and progressive I thought I was at the time. Subsequent relationships have been with age-appropriate partners. What do I do with this? I feel awful. I don't feel like I could tell anyone I know. I can't afford therapy. No insurance, no job, thanks to COVID. I need to somehow come to terms with what I've done. What do you recommend? So as I said, we're coming out hot. Very hot. Wow. Whew. I, I think there's so much to wade through. I would really, really like to start with even bearing in mind the very real possibility that there was a fucked up dynamic about your relationship. Um, a 30-year-old and a 19-year-old having sex is not grooming. Um, you know, grooming is yeah. child grooming. That's the other word in grooming. and and as young and vulnerable as he may have been, he was also 19 years old. He was not a child. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, the first thing that I think of is like, what did Jenny's friends say at the time? Because uh, the, the line about, I cringe at how pleased and progressive I thought I was, like implies that maybe she, I, maybe she was like talking about it to her friends and like was, and it was like, you know, I mean, obviously this was 30 years ago. Things, I think our, our discourse has sort of evolved since then. Since um, 1990? Since 19, holy shit, 1990 was 30 years. Yeah, I know. I know. As Ooh. soon as you said that, I was like, I think he's thinking of this as happening in the seventies and we both need to. Oh, that one, to, that one. I, you know, I can't believe I did that on air. <laughs> let that sink in as they say. Yeah. Yeah. It's at the door knocking. Um, yeah. Um, let me just say, I like that, um, this person has sort of come to terms with this relationship. Cause I think, I mean, even if it wasn't grooming, definitely sort of inappropriate. I think as far as like the, you know, this person encouraging Jenny to take control of every aspect of his life is a little like right. telling. That, like, to me, that like, I, I guess that was important to me too because I didn't want to say because it's not child grooming, it was great and you should feel great. I just think it's really important, especially in something like this, not to try to overstate harm or to conflate two very different things. I also want to point out there's another weird thing about this, which is like, he's not on social media likely due to problems with the law. Like what? <laughs> like that, that feel, I mean, like I, I, you know, the arm standoff thing, pretty bad. Mm-hmm. That's that's bad. Um, but like I, I don't think that like, you know, pre-existing family conditions imply destiny. Yeah. Or like social media presence. Because I feel like a lot of people, like a lot of Gen Xers and boomers are not on social media. Yeah, I felt like too some of the heaviness around this also has to do with a lot of maybe not projecting, but a lot of speculating about what Johnny's life is like now, um, based on what it was like at the time and this sort of sense of all of that is sort of on me or I need to take responsibility for all of that. And so I would just say like, you don't know why he's not on social media. I, I don't think you need to spend too much time worrying about that. As you were saying, and, and I think this is the most important question for me is I met him through a volunteer agency. Um, does that mean you two were both volunteering like at a food bank? Or does that mean it was like, uh, you know, a program for like troubled teens, but who were still like allowed to come around after they became of age and you were supposed to be looking for out for him in a certain capacity. Cause those are two really different dynamics and that would really affect my answer. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I feel like we don't have enough information here. Um, also like the, the other thing that I think is the relatable part of this is like, you know, Jenny has spent 30 years building up this version of Johnny in their head and like, and like has absolutely no information about like what this person's life actually might be like. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's one of those bubbles that really can't be punctured, right? Like, you can't, like, Jenny's never going to know about Johnny's life. Like, that. I feel like that much is very clear. Um, and I think, you know, moving forward implies, like, you have to, like, accept that. And you you, you can't, like, I don't know. But I, I do, I do you know, I, I sympathize with the urge to, like, invent somebody's personality and project it forward into your brain and, you know, have arguments with them. I think especially when you're trying to reassess, like, okay, I no longer think that this was just a super cool progressive thing that I was doing. And then there's that, you need to try not to careen off too hard in other directions. Like, and it's my fault that his whole family is really chaotic or, you know, his life now is probably really bad and that's because he was involved with me. And so I would just say, the question is like, what do I do? So we've established, I think there does not seem to be a way to get in touch with Johnny. And I also question, given that, the letter writer doesn't seem to have, like, for all we know, he broke up with her because he was just tired of the relationship. We don't know that he felt, you know, th there's so many different things that taking charge of every aspect of his life could have meant. 
There are ways in which that may have been really damaging and there are ways in which it may have been less so. And I just, I can't speak to that without knowing more. So I would just say, you can't like get more information from him. And you also don't want to like, even if you could find him kind of like blow in with a whirlwind of like, I feel terrible, make me feel better. So um, if you can't see a therapist, what's the next move? I would say first start by getting specific about what you regret. So this, this would, I would just say like start journaling, like write down, how did I meet him through the volunteer agency? Did we meet as peer workers, even if we weren't you know, the same age, or did we meet because I was supposed to be helping him in another capacity? And, you know, if that's the issue, then, you know, I'd encourage you to reflect more on that. What made you decide to do that? What are ways you could make sure that you don't put yourself in a position of even like volunteer authority over young people now? Um, Do you have any other thoughts beyond like trying to get more information from herself? Yeah. I mean, I think my immediate thought is like, you know, uh, if you're still in contact with friends that you knew back then, maybe talk to them about it. Because like, if they also saw this relationship, they may have, you know, they may have seen how happy you were with it, but also, you know, sort of reserve their private judgments. Or maybe they didn't, maybe they talked to you about it. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, that's a, that's a much easier thing to do than trying to, and you should not get in touch with Johnny, even if you can, um, for the record. Yeah. And, you know, I think the other thing, I think that's great to talk to, to your friends about what do they remember? What, what do they think? How do they think about it now? Uh, you, you know, write down, like you say, he encouraged you to take charge of every aspect of his life. Again, like get specific. Were you like, I don't know, did you, I, I'm trying to think, I was about to say something about a cell phone, but then I was remembering 1990. It's unlikely people <laughs> had a cell phone. Um, you know, what were the things that you were doing on his behalf? Were there ways in which he tried to establish more independence for himself and you resented it or or tried to prevent it? Um, I think getting specific here will help you because right now I think there's this real sense of because he was 19 and I was 30, it, I simply like, I, I was I was evil. And like, I, I think there are specific things that you can either look at and say either like, I violated a boundary or I took something too far or I took advantage of somebody's vulnerability. But but that does not necessarily have to mean that you like did something more serious than what you did. Like, yeah. Yeah, human relationships, uh, unfortunately, very complex. Yeah, and so I don't want to go any further into like what this may or may not have been because again, there's just a lot missing from this letter and I think a lot of it really rides on like, was this like a, a big brother, little brother program or was this like you were both helping to like staff a phone bank because... Yeah, yeah, that's, that's I think that's really important and I, yeah, I, yeah, I feel like we definitely don't have enough information and I also, you know, like uh, advice people can't provide absolution really. Uh, and this is like one of those cases that, yeah, there's no, I guess, yeah, it's fine people you can talk to, but also, you know. Yeah. And, and I think try to get a sense of like, what's the difference between inappropriate and illegal, uh, inappropriate and predatory, inappropriate and unsafe, inappropriate. You know, there are so many different ways to like hurt somebody that don't necessarily shade into, you know, I've wronged someone in such a way that they can't possibly recover. And I don't say this to either say like, don't worry, I'm sure it was great. But like, again, 19 living, it sounds like on his own before he met you, or at least, uh, you know, was not, you weren't his boss. He wasn't reliant upon you for his living. Like there's just lots of ways in which you were both legal adults. Yeah, and I just like I don't want to lose sight of that because I think that that's genuinely important here. Yeah, yeah, and then I think I think the last thing because I don't want to get stuck on this one, but like I think part of this is that question of like I never really understood why he broke up with me, and I wonder if that's part of the sense of like 
because I don't know why he broke up with me, all I can do is sort of spiral into like, it must be because I was like awful and evil and hurt him. And again, like maybe he resented it. Maybe like by the time he broke up with you, he was like, I'm sick of having, you know, my girlfriend run my life. I want to make my own decisions. Right. It's like, I don't need another mom. Also, I'm 20. Like, I don't know. I've, I've been a 20 year old boy. It was, I just did things like there was no reason, no rhyme to most of it. Um, I don't recall like thinking or having impulse control until I was like 25. So yeah, apologies uh, in advance. I think we should move on. And so I will just go to a, a nice straightforward one about a jerk, but who's like kind of right. I think, I don't know, <laughs> like they're wrong, but they're right. The subject is sour about sister. Dear Prudence. My partner of three years has a younger sister, Jessica, who's deeply unpleasant to be around. Jessica is constantly anxious about unlikely events and is relentless about expressing her fears. She is also deeply judgmental. I've had to listen to more than one speech about how homeownership is a scam, how not adopting is selfish, how owning a car is destroying the world, you name it. I'm anxious too, and I hate having to spend time with someone who basically voices my inner monologue that I'm trying to quash. We used to just limit contact, but Jessica recently got a new job in our city and announced she'll be moving here in two months. Her eccentricities make it difficult for her to make friends. She's already announced my partner and I will be her, quote, besties in the city. We are both dreading this move. I'd like my partner to set some boundaries with Jessica, and my partner agrees, but doesn't know how to do it. My partner is seeing a therapist for individual mental health concerns and doesn't want to, quote, muddy the waters by bringing up Jessica. How do we handle this? Is there a way to be friendly yet distant even when she lives in the same city? Ooh. The first thing that sticks out to me about this is the um, my partner is seeing a therapist for individual mental health concerns and doesn't want to muddy the waters by bringing up Jessica. Is it is that just like waiting until Jessica becomes a mental health concern? Like I'm this feels like it's it seems like it's adding a fair this move is adding a fair amount of stress to your life. And I feel like, you know, like that seems like a pretty obvious W. You you want you like easy bucket, right? I had the same thought there too. Obviously, you cannot force your partner to talk about something in therapy. Um, but like setting boundaries with a sibling is certainly going, I think, to come up in the context of your mental health. Um, and it's certainly a skill that you'll want to develop uh, throughout the course of your life. So I would encourage the letter writer to just, you know, push back a little bit with the partner. Um, obviously, if the partner just is like, nope, not going to do it, can't make them. But I would really strongly encourage like, you don't have to dedicate the next session to Jessica, but like maybe bring it up, talk about it for five or 10 minutes, see how it goes. I, I think this is like, this feels like, this feels like a classic problem, right? Like I, I've definitely had friends who I keep at arm's length because of things like this. And you know, it's like, uh, it makes me more anxious to hang out with them sometimes, but it feels better if I can control when and how that happens. And yeah, I think, I mean, I think the thing here is just to be sort of firm, like um, moving during a pandemic is very hard. And, you know, making friends is also hard, even now. But, I mean, I think, you know, at this point, uh, we know that socializing with people outside of our households is not a great idea. And, yeah, the weather's turning. I mean, I feel like this this one... Yeah, unless you live in an incredibly warm city. Yeah. One of the things... And, again, this is short-term. This is not going to be able to last forever. But you can absolutely use that as an excuse. Um, and then, in the meantime... I think the only thing you need to be a little bit careful of is that it's your partner's sister. So you don't have quite the same freedom to to 
be blunt as you might with just a friend. But that certainly doesn't mean you can't say something on your own behalf. So like if your partner is just dead set on, I'm not going to bring this up with my therapist. I have no plans to say anything to Jessica. Then I think your move is, you know, okay, there are some times when I'm going to say something to Jessica. And I want you to know that in advance because I cannot join you in your never say anything to Jessica policy. And you can, I think, commit to, I'm not going to yell at her. I'm going to say something before I get to like incredibly upset Um, And I'm not going to accuse her of like, you're the worst person in the world and you're always bitching and I hate it. Uh, Shut up. But you can absolutely say something like, Jessica, I just got to interrupt you. This is really stressing me out. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you've been kind of spiraling about something very negative for a while. And I would love to just discuss movies or something else. Super reasonable thing to say. Very reasonable. I mean, does the other thing, the other question that I have is like, does she notice that you're uncomfortable when you hang out? I mean, because like uh, you, you mentioned that you know, you have the same sort of inner anxiety monologue. Yeah, right. That's such a great way to say it, right? Like, yeah. I, I worry about these things too. You and I are kind of on the same side here. I just... We don't need to relitigate it. We, we're, we're, we're here together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I really just think like there are some people who feel like constantly being worried is praxis. And if you're not always talking about how upsetting something is, it means you don't care. Those people are deeply misguided. <laughs> I do want to point out it does sometimes feel like praxis. I understand the feeling. Uh, it's the same as like how people, a lot of people think posting is praxis, which, you know, maybe a little liberal of with the definition of speech acts. I mean, I, that, that was part of what I was thinking. It was like, I mean, she's not wrong about homeownership or cars. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go quite as far as her uh, about anybody who wants to have children via their own reproductive organs is selfish. But um, certainly the the home and car stuff, I think she's pretty spot on. So you know, not wrong. It's just, again, absolutely. If every time she gets together, that's all she wants to talk about. Good Lord, that's dull. I do feel for Jessica a little bit though. Like this, this line about her eccentricities making it difficult for her to make friends and like moving to a new city during a pandemic. Like this is, this is some tough stuff. But I think the thing there then is focus on making the limited time that you spend with her more meaningful by not just letting every shitty thing she says or does slide. Because if you always let it slide, because you think, well, you know, she's my partner's sister. You will hate spending time with her. But if you find ways to like gently, politely say, I'm nervous about this too. Can we talk about something else? I think you will enjoy the time you spend with her a little bit more. Maybe even just a tiny bit, but that's still not nothing. Okay, this next letter is... I oof, ooh, I read I read this one a little bit and I was like, ooh, baby, ooh, I am having yeah. a time. I'm having a feeling. I read that first sentence and I was like, I bet I know how this ends. Yeah, and it ends in I, I it's it's not even first as far as then as tragedy. It's just, ah, uh, man, I'm feeling for y'all. Subject: changing names. Dear Prudence, my white parents wanted a rainbow family. Sorry, rainbow is in quotation marks. A rainbow family, and adopted four racially diverse foster kids. Then my sister and I came along and they decided to give us ethnic, again in quotation marks, ethnic names for the sake of family harmony. I am Kenya and my sister is Aisha. Our childhood was stressful because our parents were always parading us around and lecturing us about how lucky we were. We wanted to be less conspicuous. Our older brothers both had developmental disabilities, so they went to our school, but our parents expected us to sit and eat lunch with them every day. We were always teased for this and for our names. In high school, I became as independent as possible. My mother made us handmade clothes. I switched them out for clothes I'd shoplifted from thrift stores on the bus ride home. I went from Kenya to Kenna and told all my teachers to call me that. 
It was close enough that if my parents ever heard it, I could explain it away. When I turned 18, I went to a community college at the far end of the state. I also legally changed my name. I never told my parents. Aisha started going by Alicia and was going to make the change legal, but then the pandemic hit, and now she's been having second thoughts. She's considering telling our parents over the holiday. I want her to wait. One of our other adopted sisters had a falling out with the family over her racial identity. She feels, quote, like a stranger in her own community and blames her parents. She has stopped calling them mom and dad. It broke their hearts. I don't want to hurt our parents. They are generally good people and wanted to do good things, but the world isn't kind. I want to wait. Alicia's on the fence. Am I being a coward? Help me. So there's a lot here. Yeah, I... um. <laughs> I, as you say, there's just a lot. Um, I, I feel like the letter writer's sort of asking a question with am I being a coward, but but it's a little bit unclear like what the question is beyond like, well, what should I feel and do? Because some of this is like, you can encourage your sister to to wait, but you can't make her, right? So some of this is kind of out of your hands. And I feel like maybe some of the question here is like, two of my sisters have feelings about our family experience or what it was like growing up together that I want to contest or that I want to shape or mold. And, and I guess the question then is like, what do we think this letter writer should do with those feelings? Do we think that those feelings are heading in the right direction or should go somewhere else? Yeah. And I, I feel like the question to me seems, it seems like I don't want to break up my family, which is like, I mean, I, I don't know the family dynamic, but it seems like uh, a little bit, maybe a little bit overblown just on first read. Like, I, I feel like, you know, not telling your parents that you changed your name is, is one thing. And then, you know, not have like telling your sister, not telling your sister to wait to change her name is like a totally separate thing. But I don't know. I, this, this gives me a very strange feeling reading this letter. I really feel for you letter writer. I really do. I feel like there is a lot of, a lot of pain condensed into that first paragraph. Uh, just, and yeah, just like kids are cruel in high school or kids are cruel in middle school. And, you know, I understand kids not cruel, wanting. Yeah. yeah. Just, just and, broadly pick a school and yeah, kids school. can be cruel. <laughs> and I, yeah, I mean, I think I, oh yeah, this, this, my white parents wanted a rainbow family. Like that one really hits me in the, in the gut. Just like, especially that sense of not belonging uh, to, to whatever community. Right. And I think especially that sense of like the family will do something for us, the parents, in terms of shaping how the world sees us and what kinds of people we are. And it seems like when that ran up against how the kids were actually experiencing that family, they kind of went with, we can't hear you. It also runs up against like the, the realities of race in America, which is like, this is like, this is a deep and old problem. And I totally understand um, like all of these feelings. Um, that said, what do I do? Whew. Um, I think you, yeah, you can tell your, you can tell your sister, wait, but like, you know, it's her life and her choice. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I, I also sort of think that it might be a good thing for your parents to know how you feel because like, if it's not just, if it's not just you and it's not just your sister, if it's three of you, it's like, it seems like there's like sort of a, there's a thing going on here and I, I, I it, and it, it seems like it's, uh, you know, for the sake of like. I don't know. It just feels like a really important thing to address with the family um, if you all feel this way. And, I, you know, I feel like, you know, doing having sort of a united front in that regard is is helpful. Yeah, especially because I think, um, you know, the letter writer says, I want to wait. But then before that, they say, I don't want to hurt our parents. 
So like when you say you want to wait, I think what you actually mean is I don't want her to do it because what would you be waiting for? Like what would be different six months from now or a year from now or two years from now? It doesn't sound like anything other than just like, I just, I want to avoid this for as long as I can. So, or I mean, I guess maybe like, you know, the idea of it doing it at Christmas feels too fraught, which I get, <laughs> sure. But then I mean, like- Get it all out at once. Why not? Yeah, it's like times are rough all over. You know, you can either have a fight about it in December or have a fight about it in February. And February is much colder, generally speaking. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I think that like, the other thing that I want to like sort of emphasize here is like the parents- like the the white parents' sort of blinkered vision about the realities of race in America. Like, I, I mean, mm-hmm. transracial adoption is sort of a, it's obviously a very fraught thing. Yeah. And the idea of telling your children that they should consider themselves lucky. Extremely, extremely fucked up. And I, I just like, I, I guess I'm sort of baffled by like, you know, wanting a rainbow family. Like why? Adopting racially diverse foster kids good but also like it seems as though you've you've sort of severed them from any connection to their ethnic communities which is like that's that's really tough because like kids grow up and like i don't know it's like it's hard to feel like it's it's hard because america puts you in these buckets like based on what you look like and you know you're automatically assumed to identify with these people who look like you and it's it's like very tough when it, that dislocation is very tough when it when you don't feel a part of that community and you know i mean like Personally, I sort of get it myself. Like, I, I, I felt uh, I had a lot of conflicting feelings. I'm black. Sorry for the record. I had a lot of conflicting feelings about it for a long time, like, when I was growing up, because I was like, what does this mean? Like, where do, where do I fit in? Uh, I'm not like these people, but I'm not like these people. And there was a lot of, like, you know, conscious backpack rappers to sort of lead me in directions that weren't always fruitful, by the way. Good music, though. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it like, it. you have to become, an like, adult yourself. You have to decide how you identify and what your what your relationship to your racial identity is. And, you know, like, if that hurts your parents, like, that I think is okay because I think it means that that hurt is, like, them starting to understand what actually race is like in America. Right. And, like, the experience of being, like, a person of color in America is, like, it's, 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 it's hard to understand if you don't live it, you know? But this is, this is a way to, for them to sort of get closer to that. And I think it's it's like the first couple of generations of, I think there was a sort of wave of like white transracial adoptions um, in the 70s and 80s. And often I think among lots of white families and communities, this sense of somehow transracial adoption is going to cure white people of racism. And then as that generation has grown up and they've shared their experiences, like that's not to say that everyone had the exact same experience, but a lot of people have, you know, reported like, my parents believe, like my white parents believed good intentions made up for everything else, including like not knowing how to do my hair or not having any other members of like my community as a part of my life and feeling really isolated. And then the parents just can't hear that. Yeah, it is. It is unbelievably brutal. And maybe, I mean, also I, I will say like reading some of these accounts actually might, might feel a little cathartic. Um, so I would, I would definitely encourage you to do that because like, yeah, I don't know. You, I mean, like the thing is, you have parents, but you have to confront the world alone. Like you don't, like you, you grow up, you know, like and they can't always be there for you. And it's like it feels like that is sort of the original sin here is them, you know, wanting to solve race in America by like adopting diverse kids. But then, like being so resistant to listening to those kids when they grow up and try to say like this hurt me. Yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm actually curious about like it seems like one of your siblings has already done this. Yeah. And like, you know, like, 
she feels like a stranger in her her own community and blames our parents. She stopped calling them mom and dad. Like it broke their hearts. But I don't, I mean, I think their hearts should be broken a little bit. Like I really, like it, if you've raised a bunch of brown kids to adulthood and you didn't, you didn't understand the ways that the world might hurt them, that feels like an abdication of parental duty. Like it really, like that is the thing. Sorry, I, I this is the thing I cannot abide by. Like, <laughs> that's like, you know, it's like, is it good intentions or is it ignoring racism on a purpose? Like, yeah, because at a certain point, it's like, how are you, how lecturing you about how you're lucky? Like, bruh. Mm-hmm. And like parading us around kind of makes it sound like they would often put all of you on display. Um, and I imagine, and it's clear to me in this letter, what it felt like to you as their white child. And I would just encourage you to think. There are ways in which it was that bad. And then there were more difficult things for my other siblings who did not have the like social cover of shared whiteness in those moments. So they were just as much on the spot as you were, but they were also experiencing racism. And um, it doesn't sound like your sister um, went from like zero to 60. It doesn't sound like she just said like one day abruptly out of nowhere, I'm never calling you mom and dad again. It sounds like there were a couple of conversations and it also sounds like your parents didn't listen. So I'll just say like your parents don't need to be protected from hurt. If your kid tells you I was upset about this aspect of my upbringing and um, I want to talk to you about it, even if it hurts, you should listen and try to consider the possibility that you did something wrong. You're obligated to listen, not should listen. You are obligated to I want to make that very clear. But I mean, this is there the, the other on the other hand, there is like there is evidence that like, you know, people people these people can change. Like your mom and dad might, you know, like maybe this is a maybe this could be a wake-up call for them because like maybe like maybe they like I mean, I don't know, you have to identify a harm to like really get past it, right? And you know, you have to the original sort of fucked up shit here, you have to sort of you know, talk through that. But I, I was reading this um piece in Descent magazine recently where this this white couple had adopted a black child and you know he had grown up um, in, I think, a majority white city among, you know, like, and homeschooled. And he, you know, he grew up and he's like, he's eight, he was 18 and Ferguson happened and he wanted to go to Ferguson. And so they all went. And it was like, you know, like this, this father was detailing his, like, his sort of like racial awakening. And he was, you know, he was like a, I believe a professor. Like he's somebody who like knew, he knew the theory, but it was like, it wasn't until, you know, he saw his son as a black adult that he sort of realized what was going on, like, with his son and, like, sort of realized, like, the stakes. Um, and so I think it's probably good for your parents to, like, you know, to hear this stuff, especially even if it's coming from the other end, you know? Like, ah, so, yeah, I, I wish you luck. And uh, I feel for you. I feel for you and your siblings. I really do. Yeah, and I would just say, give your siblings a little bit more of the latitude you want to give your parents. because. You know, if you've hurt someone and they tell you, like, you you should, even if it is hard to hear, like, your goal should be, like, thank you for telling me. I'm glad I know so I can try to make amends for it. And so if your parents' response is, like, no, 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 don't tell me having that name was hard for you. Don't tell me that the way that we um, treated you like accessories uh, harmed you. Pretend it was good. Like, that's shitty. And if your parents are really good people, they shouldn't do that. So. Yeah. And if they're good people, they'll come around. So, you know, take heart. Um I move on. I move on to our last letter. Subject is, I feel like I'm competing with my boyfriend's friend and I'm losing. Dear Prudence, I've been dating an amazing man for a few months now. And although it's early, we both see a future together. I generally consider myself confident and independent, but anytime we're around his best friend, who's also a woman, I find myself mired in insecurity. They only recently reconnected after having a falling out a couple of years ago. 
And even before they reconciled, he would occasionally mention her, how cool and fun she was, all of the adventures that they'd had, what an impact she'd had on his life. I'm a little introverted, whereas she's very outgoing and bubbly. We've talked about it a few times, and my boyfriend's been clear that he's happy to offer me support whenever I need it. I thought befriending her would make things easier, but sometimes I worry she doesn't respect me or our relationship. There's small things, though, like automatically claiming the front seat of his car if we're all together, stripping down to her sports bra in front of him if we're working out, making comments in front of him that feel flirtatious or sexual, at least to me. For example, the three of us were going to a dance workout, and I asked her if she liked to dance, to which she responded that she loved to dance, quote, to seduce men, or talking about how she just got a Brazilian wax. Not responding to a Facebook friend request. I go back and forth between thinking that my insecurities are irrational and thinking that she is really trying to undermine our relationship. I'm generally a good communicator, but I don't know how to broach this particular issue without sounding petty or jealous. This is the most fulfilling relationship of my life, and I don't want to damage it. What should I do? Did you have a read one way or the other of whether, yes, there are some fraught dynamics (laughs) here just below the surface, or I think maybe you're bringing more of it to the table did, did you just, like, have a gut feeling of, like, yeah, I think she's trying to, like, throw you a little bit? I mean, I the thing that really, like, sticks out to me is the Facebook friend request thing. I mean, <laughs> it feels really specific uh, just because, like, I, I feel like if I got a, a friend, re- if I, like, friend requested my uh, partner's, like, old best friend and we'd all been hanging out together, they would, you know, see it. Or maybe not. If they don't log into Facebook, that's one thing because I, you know, don't really. But, like, it seems uh, that was a, that's a little bit of an odd detail. Yeah. I mean, to me, the vibe I got from this was not like some of this stuff. I feel like that's very much my theme today is like, you're right about some of this. And I think you're wrong about some of it. So like the the bit about, you know, she says she likes to dance to seduce men. I mean, maybe that is flirtatious, but that's the kind of flirtatiousness that I think is interesting and cool. And um, I think if your response to it is like, someone should make her stop, you got to let that one go. Like if she likes to dance to seduce men, cool. She should. She should have a good time. She should seduce some men. If you're worried she's going to seduce your man and uh, that he won't pay attention to you or respect your boundaries or your limits, go talk to your man. Don't say to her, go talk to your man. Yeah. Yeah. Like, don't say to her, like, like dancing less or like pretend you like it because it's a good cardiovascular workout. Like, I, I have no interest in making this lady apologize for liking sex or dancing. Like, that's just not going to go anywhere. Agreed. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, I, uh, why did they reconcile? I find myself wondering, like, you know, if they've been sort of estranged for a while, like, what's the reason? Yeah, I, I was really curious about that, too. And I, th- I think, frankly, like, the place to go for more information is just your boyfriend. You know, you've already talked about this a couple of times. That's really great. I, I think go back and say, like, I'd love to know more about what the nature of your falling out was and what reconciling looked like. And maybe you already know the broad strokes, but, like, you want to know more about what he felt um, and make it clear, like, I'm not trying to quiz you because I I, I want to find evidence that you're secretly in love with her. And once I get it, I'm going to throw something at you. Um, I just, as you know, this is a, a relationship where I want to be warm and friendly towards her. I sometimes feel um, held off at arm's length by her. And I want to know more. Yeah. And I mean, he also does seem to know that you're, like, insecure, right? He's offered his support already. So I think that, that I mean, that conversation will probably go very well. I, I think that uh, you going back and forth is is legit here. I just, I, I'm still stuck on this Facebook friend request detail because it is such a small thing. Mm-hmm. It is such a small thing. Like, why wouldn't you just say yes? Like, or just say like, oh, I sent you a Facebook friend request. Did you get it? 
Yeah, some of this just feels also like, I don't know, like, how often are you all three working out together? Like, I don't know, maybe you all work at the same gym or something, but like, yeah, th- yes, yeah, so there's, there's so much in here. Like, I do believe that the underlying dynamic is, is, is a real one. I believe that this woman a little bit, and not necessarily like wants to break you two up, but a little bit wants to like stake out her territory. I, I, I find that plausible. I've done versions of that in my own life. I've felt other people do them to me. I, I think that that is a real thing. And it doesn't necessarily mean that she hates you. It just maybe means she feels a little bit threatened by the fact that she finally reconciled with her friend and he had a new serious girlfriend. And she wants to occasionally be like, remember, I'm cool and sexy and interesting and people like me. So yeah, because I, yeah, I can see her also being sort of insecure about it too. Yeah, um, which is not to say like, oh, she's like people sometimes say that when someone's being an asshole and it's like, oh, like bears are more scared of you than you are of them. And it's like, well, maybe, but like that wouldn't excuse it if a bear like clawed my arm off either. Well, I mean, if it was, I don't think you can reason with bears, but yes, I take your point. Yeah, I was just like, you don't always know if someone's actually <laughs> yeah, scared yeah, of you yeah. rather um, or, or whatever. Anyways, all of which is just to say, so some of this, yeah, talk to your boyfriend. Some of this, be a little bit more assertive yourself. I know you said that you were introverted and so I don't say that lightly, but I also know that even introverted people can, with practice, become more assertive. So if she automatically claims the front seat of his car, then, you know, once this pandemic is over and we're all driving around again together, I want you to say, I'm going to sit in the front seat this time. You just, like, if somebody, you know, this is one of those things where, like, there's no magic solution to this one other than just saying it. If someone else is always calling shotgun and you would like to sit in the front seat of the car, shotgun is not, like, legally binding. Um, And if you really need the support, talk about it with your boyfriend ahead of time and say, like, I know this is small, but I'd like to sit in the front of the car sometimes. Or maybe I'd like to drive sometimes, even. I know that that sounds outrageous, but you could maybe consider it. (laughs) Um, And then just, yeah, name the thing that you need and then take it. That's great advice. You know, I, I I promise, like, there are absolutely ways in which I also would be like, that can't be the solution to my problem. Like, saying something can't be the answer. Like, do you have anything else? I get that. I do. But, like, this lady's going to keep saying shotgun until you say shotgun or we're not doing shotgun anymore. We're in our 30s. Or it's my car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, yeah, any of those things. All of them are available to you. You can't just... You, you got to do something because she's not going to do it for you. And then if she, you know, if she says something that you think is really charged or feels hurtful, you know, you can say something. You can you can say that hurts my feelings or that makes me uncomfortable. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend you say it when she says things like I like dancing and men because you're responsible for your discomfort there. I think mm-hmm. maybe like if you want to do it, like test it. Like, did she just do anything that takes something away from me? Or that could take something away from me? And if the answer is like, well, no, not really liking to dance and liking men in general is not. If she's not trying to dance with your man, you know, I'm not, not even, sorry, this, I'm trying to make a seduction joke. If she's not trying to seduce your man, if she's saying she likes to dance to seduce men, hey, great. If she says she likes to, to dance to seduce your boyfriend in particular, maybe talk to her. Yeah, and like, if she like comes over to his house and is like, hey, can you make me some coffee? And then takes her shirt off apropos of nothing, certainly mm-hmm. grounds to talk to your boyfriend. If certainly. you are all working out and she is sweating a lot and she takes off her shirt so that she can be less sweaty and you happen to have a feeling because of the way that she looks when she's got her shirt off or the way she makes you feel about yourself, that is one of those things where it, you just, you, you, you cannot make her responsible for the way that her body makes you feel and um, people take their shirts off when they exercise. It's not an unreasonable thing to do. 
again, if she were like then like snapping it into his mouth and telling him to drink her sweat, we'd have a problem. Wow. Very specific there. Yeah. I, I guess I just am trying to like get to a point of like, that would be bad. Then you could get mad. Um, then you could get mad. Yeah. But yeah, you should also, I mean, I also think you should feel your feelings like, you know, and feel your feelings and then talk to him. Because again, like, you know, feelings of insecurity are, are normal and, you know, uh, as much as we'd like them not to be. So Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that will be the most helpful thing as you try to like figure out why am I pinging back and forth between these two things. Because really, I would say, if you try to make sure that you don't sound jealous, you're going to drive yourself nuts. It's okay to be jealous. That doesn't mean that you're acting rudely or inappropriately or um, selfishly. You can just say, sometimes I'm really jealous of your friend. And I don't say that because that's how I want to feel all the time. And I don't say that because I want you to feel responsible for my jealousy. But I want you to know about it. I'm not ashamed of it. It is a feeling. I, I think oftentimes people make things worse for themselves when they try to hide something like jealousy or a feeling that they're ashamed of. But people can sense that discomfort. And like in that previous letter, like people can tell when you're ashamed or embarrassed of something, even if you don't want to admit it. So like you end up doing things like not using somebody's name and like freezing in stony silence whenever someone says it. And it's like, yeah, I know you're uncomfortable with my name. That's not a good secret. Or like here, I think this dynamic you know it. I think probably she knows it to some extent. I think your boyfriend certainly knows it because you've talked about it more than once. So, you know, saying I'm jealous is not the same thing as putting on like a Yosemite Sam hat and saying like, I'm going to horsewhip her if she comes near you again. Great. 10 yeah. gallon hat was what I was thinking of, not Yosemite 10 Sam. gallon hat? Mm -hmm. 10 gallon or 20 gallon? I feel like I've never in my life heard of a 20 gallon hat. I feel like I've heard. Okay. I, I hear Google fingers going. You do, you do. Well, uh, actually, it autocorrected to 20-gallon fish tank, which does exist. Um, hat. 20-gallon hat. There's got to be bigger hats. Hold on. Well, there's apparently something. Uh, there's a 20-gallon hat available at the village hat shop. Okay, there's a 40-gallon hat. In San Diego. This seems to be an extra, extra large hat. So it's, it's a hat for, for, for somebody with a, a, a larger-than-average head. Hat, but bigger. I like it. Listen, if you find one, let me know. I would like to wear it. And uh, how are you feeling? We just gave advice to a lot of people in very fraught situations. Yeah, that was, did you, did you purposefully choose hard questions or what? <laughs> I mean, some weeks are slightly easier than others. This was definitely like a, a, a trombone sound week. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I feel for most of these letter writers, you know, like, it, it like I, I it's just it's funny because like uh doing this is fun because it reminds me of how just how many people there are, there are in the world and how many people have so many complicated feelings about so many different things just yeah. it's good to be reminded of as a writer <laughs> i think too yeah sometimes the hardest weeks are, are weeks where like a bunch of people in a row are like oh you do have some reason to be upset here but i also think you've introduced a lot of wrong things and that's complicated because then i i worry that i'm going either too hard on somebody or too easy and by the end, I just need to lie down. So I think we should call it a day. It's dark Absolutely. outside, which is very upsetting. It's not even it 5 p.m. Yeah, you're also in Brooklyn. It's just night now. Yeah. It's, it's just, just nighttime. Thank you. You were such a fabulous guest. I really had a great time. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. 
You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Dating a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old is not, I, I can't join you on that boat. Like, I can't go with you to, to the island of that's the same as a sex crime against a minor. You don't have to like it at all. Um, you are free to, to be disgusted by uh, your dad dating younger guys, but like, yeah, I mean, there is there is a yeah a, a a real distance between inappropriate and grooming. Yeah, and just like sleeping with girls younger than you. I don't know what to, like I don't know what to say. Like he's not sleeping with girls. It might feel weird for you, but like your father isn't picking his dates based on like any calculus on his kid's age. Like if everyone is an adult. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.